Welcome to the True Talk Cafe podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited that you're here. Our podcast tackle a myriad of topics ranging from relationships and personal development and everything in between. Today's show is all about Black History Month. This is sure to be a fascinating conversation. Before we dive in, let me introduce you to the pod crew. My name is Renee Stewart, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anna Garcia. Hi. And Carla Decor. Hello, everyone. And our friend Lolly is not here today, but we're wishing her well. Collectively, we span four generations. Can you believe that? We've all experienced ups and downs in in our personal lives and professional careers that have qualified us to share our unique perspectives with you, and we're excited to do so. Before we get into today's content, I wanted to let you know where you can find us on social media. On Instagram and Facebook, you can find us at, at True Talk Cafe. And Twitter, you can use at True Talk Cafe One. Don't forget to like us, rate us, and leave a review because we value your feedback. We want to ensure that we provide content that resonates with you. So please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to your podcast. We are so excited about today's show. You will want to stay tuned to hear what our guests are going to share about their Black history expertise and personal experiences. Also, stick around to find out how you can join us in a live showing. Now, let's get started. So, it's February, and that means it's Black History Month. Black History Month is an annual celebration of achievements by African Americans and a time for recognizing their central role in U.S. history. Now, let's talk a little bit about the origins of Black History Month. This event grew out of the National Negro History Week in 1926 and was the brainchild of noted Harvard-trained historian Carter G. Woodson and the prominent minister Jesse E. Moreland. Together, they founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, an organization dedicated to researching and promoting achievements by Black Americans and other peoples of African descent. Woodson and Moreland chose the second week of February to celebrate Black people because it coincided with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. However, in 1976, Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month, and since then, every U.S. president has officially designated the month of February as Black History Month. Interesting enough, Other countries around the world, including Canada and United Kingdom, also devote a month to celebrating Black history, which I think is awesome. Each year, there's a theme to the celebration, which admittedly, I did not know this, (laughs) sadly. This year's theme is Black health and wellness. It explores the legacy of not only Black scholars and medical practitioners in Western medicine, but also in other ways, such as people that are birth workers, doulas, midwives, etc., throughout the African diaspora. The 2022 theme considers activities, rituals, and initiatives that Black communities have done to be well. So now that we've been briefed on the origins and this year's theme of Black History, I'm excited to introduce our two guests that will share their perspectives and experiences on this topic. Our first guest is Dr. Shindell Seal. 
She is a cultural equity and diversity strategist who employs leadership and performance optimization concepts to help entrepreneurs, corporate and academic stakeholders, and diversity inclusion professionals identify and reach their organizational culture goals. For over two decades, Dr. Seal served in various leadership and training roles in sectors, including the corporate environment, academia, and the nonprofit arena. Her work has focused on business performance, optimization, staff development, and creating sustainable and equitable working environments. She provides DEI, leadership, and staff training to state and law enforcement departments across the nation. Her research and consulting on creating equitable solutions in gender, race, age, and ability matters has led to her being a sought-after subject matter expert and speaker. In addition to her coaching and consulting services, Dr. Seal is the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Program Chair at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Silicon Valley Extension, where she also develops and teaches courses on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace and academia. Dr. Seal is also an adjunct professor at the University of Redlands, where she teaches leadership, organizational change, and business communication. Dr. Seal also holds a Doctor of Education degree in organizational change and leadership and a Master of Education degree, both from the University of Southern California. She also earned her Bachelor of Arts with a focus on language and linguistics from California State University at Dominguez Hills. So welcome, Dr. Steele. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. No problem. Our second guest is a friend to the pod crew. It's Mr. Dennis Kennedy. Dennis has an unwavering passion for people and works to ensure that all individuals receive equal opportunities in the workplace, regardless of race, ethnicity, sex, religion, age, physical or mental handicaps, physique, gender, identity, or sexual orientation. In 2004, Mr. Kennedy walked away from his job to start the Texas Diversity Council because he felt a very strong need to create an organization that would champion diversity and inclusion across the state. Four years later, Mr. Kennedy found himself launching the National Diversity Council for the same reasons he started the state council. Currently, the NDC is made up of 16 state and regional councils. His vision is to have state and regional diversity councils in all 50 states. Along with the state councils, he has launched several statewide conferences focused on diversity, leadership, and women. Currently, there are conferences taking place in 32 states. Furthermore, Mr. Kennedy launched two additional national organizations in 2011, including the National Women's Council, which focuses on advocacy for women and the Council of Corporate Responsibility, which seeks to educate organizations on the best practices and social responsibility. In addition, he is the creator of the Diversity First newsletter, a proud product of Diversity First Publishing, which is distributed in 13 states. Prior to his entrepreneurship, Mr. Kennedy spent several years as a college professor in the business schools at University of Houston downtown, Texas Southern University, and University of Texas at San Antonio, teaching business statistics, economics, HR management, compensation management, and diversity management. He also spent five years working in a corporate environment in the field of human resources. Welcome, Mr. Kennedy. As you can see, we have two heavy hitters here, and we are so excited to hear what they're going to tell us and share with us. So my first question 
is to both of you. What does Black History Month mean to you? And we'll take ladies first, Dr. Seal. Well, it's interesting that we learned from you that Black History Month started with Carter G. Woodson. That is one of my favorite authors. The Miseducation of the Negro actually really helped prompt me to do a lot of the stuff that I do. When I think about the work that I do, doing DEI work, I mean, that's my job, right? That's, that's my business. That's, that's what I do for a living. So it makes Black History Month a little bit more turned up, if you know what I'm saying, right? So as you can imagine, from February 1st to the 28th or, or 29th, depending on the year that we have, every organization wants to be like super diverse. For me, it's an opportunity to share not just the known aspects of diversity. Oh, yes, we have to be, you know, diversity is important. Equity is important. But it's actually really an, an, an opportunity for me to appreciate this as a collective where, where everybody is, is doing it all together, whether authentic or not. Right. So I saw this post the other day, which was really interesting. It said, I'm black 24, 7, 365. But during Black History Month, I'm blackity black, black. And it's really like it's really an interesting feeling that you can't you can't really describe. You can't really describe it. But to know that you feel you feel as though there's a collective appreciation. And I think that that's really for me what Black History Month starts to feel like it's been starting to feel like recently. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Mr. Kennedy, would you like to share as well? Yeah, sure. I believe for a lot of African-Americans, Black history provides an opportunity to reflect on the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good definitely being the progress African-Americans have made since President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation that freed slaves in 1882. The bad being the systemic racism that permeates every facet of American society including our workplaces, as African-Americans are still significantly underrepresented on corporate boards and senior leadership teams. Sixty years after the passing of the Civil Rights Bill, the ugly, the killing of innocent Black people by police, for example, George Floyd. Like most, I believe our country has made significant progress. For example, my mother was born in the 1930s, She was among the 87% of African-Americans who lived in abject poverty during the 30s. She went to college in the 50s. When she graduated, her choices for a career were limited. One, being a teacher. Two, being a nurse. She could not stand uh, the sight of blood, so she became a teacher for 30 years. Today, we have a Black woman as vice president, and President Obama served for eight years. So there's a lot more opportunities. I, I couldn't imagine living in a society that limits me because of the color of my skin. But I think many African-Americans reflect, as I mentioned, on the good, the bad, and the ugly of our history. Yeah, I mean, my mother was the same way, born in the, in the 30s, and she was a teacher for 30 years. <laughs> so I totally get that. Can you share a personal experience that was life-changing that set you on your current path of purpose? Was there like one defining moment for you, Dr. Seal? Well, mine, a defining moment, well, I think I'm going to go way back to when I first came to this country. I'm not actually from this country. I'm from Barbados. And when I originally came here, you know, it was, it was really interesting because everyone, everyone from my country looked like me, right? So I was, when I got here, 
it was it was an interesting kind of culture shift. And I came here about nine years old or so, and I'm in school and some kid says to me, oh, you're black. You shouldn't be listening to country music or or Spanish music or something. I, I was listening to some, I think it was either like a Mexican music, like banda or something like that. But they were like, you're black. You're not supposed to be listening. And I'm like, you, you, you obviously don't know your colors. Like this is brown. This isn't black, right? Because we never use that term where I'm from. And so from that, it, I, I was, I was honestly, I was stunned that I, I was looking at myself, not sure what that meant, but just think about the attribution, right, of behaviors based on my skin color that were conveyed in just that one sentence, in just that one sentence. So I guess from that time, I've been fascinated by the cultural constructs that, that we all live under and that we accept. And, and how did they form and why, why do we co-sign to them? And so this is, that would probably be like the first experience I, I can remember that, that actually started me on this path. Thank you for sharing that. Mr. Kennedy, would you like to take that question as well? Do you have a defining moment? Yeah, I think the uh, defining moment for me was finishing my MBA and going to corporation after corporation. I remember you know, I live in Houston, Texas, so energy is a big sector here. And walking on, you know, being interviewed, second interview at the corporate headquarters, and, you know, being toured around the building and walking in the, the trading floor of the energy company, and not seeing one African-American professional, saw two black female secretaries, but no, 300 people, no no African-Americans, period. And I was really taken aback and really shocked. I didn't know what corporate America was like. You know, I didn't know it was a place where cultures were not inclusive and that people were not judged based on their talent, but the color of their skin, and that women didn't have the same opportunities as men. And I think, I think unless you work in corporate, you, you have a, a perception that Everyone's treated equally and people are promoted fairly and, you know, everyone has the opportunity to be developed and trained. And what I learned working in corporate America is that as I worked with leaders and, you know, and when I was in corporate America, I had some, some responsibility and I worked with five leaders and they all were white men. And what I learned was of those five, two were really, really good. And the other three were just average. And I and my thoughts were, you know, what got them to that level was, you know, sponsorship, mentorship, coaching that got them to that level. And I said, if the company was inclusive, they would have all five of those people at that level would be, you know, at the top if they included women and people of color, because talent comes in all shades and all genders. And so you know, just there's been multiple points in my career and, you know, of, wow, you know, opening, opening my eyes up to why I should be an advocate for diversity and inclusion. And I understand what it means to be voiceless. I, I understand what it means to be working in an organization and you're asking for a mentor and they're telling you you're going to get a mentor and you never get a mentor. And so there are a lot of people that work in corporate who are voiceless. And if they were to share their thoughts and their feelings, they would be blacklisted for sure. 
maybe not every environment, but in a lot of workplaces, it's best for people of color, women to be quiet around issues of inequality. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that with corporate America. I guess it has improved, but we have a long way to go. No doubt about that. That kind of segues into, you know, you were kind of touching on it a little bit, but Mr. Kennedy, what led you to quit your job and start the Diversity Council? And what is the mission of your organization? Right. So obviously it was some experiences over the years that kind of opened my eyes up to racism in the workplace. And I just was really surprised about because I just didn't know. And neither one of my parents worked in a corporate environment. My dad worked for the government. I had a degree in biology. My mom was a teacher. And so we didn't have family dialogues on racism in the workplace. But I, it was unequivocally a calling for me. And, you know, for me to quit my job was a very difficult decision. And my initial thoughts was, why do I have to start this? I mean, it should be someone else out there. I'm an individual contributor in the workplace. I don't have any networks. No one knows who I am. Why am I starting this? Because it seemed like a very formidable task. And so for me, it was a matter of me answering the calling and in speaking about what is right in an environment that didn't care what was right. Today's different, right? After killing George Floyd, I I mean, I get phone calls, emails, um, bombarded. Uh, people send me messages on LinkedIn. But it's, un- it's, it's unfortunate that tragedies such as killing George Floyd makes people open their eyes up and, you know, go for it. But our mission is to promote diversity in the workplace and community and be an advocate for change and really be a beacon of light in a dark place and hopefully help organizations maneuver through change and make their workplace a more inclusive place for all employees. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. You know, we've made some strides, but we definitely, definitely have a long way to go. But, you know, making sure that we are including everyone, especially those folks that are in those decision-making roles, because, you know, a lot of them are not African-American. So you have to get them engaged as well. One last question to you for right now. What was it like for you to interview the first Black president of the United States, Mr. President Barack Obama? Yeah. So that was uh, utterly amazing to have the opportunity just to meet him. Just was taken aback that he even showed up. (laughs) You know, just, you know, waiting for him to show up. But then I had an opportunity to meet with him one-on-one and have a dialogue with him. And he was very humble, very down to earth, and I spent an hour with him on stage and very nice guy. I was very pleased to have the opportunity to to meet him and, you know, him being the first African-American president, you know, he's very passionate about diversity and for him to come participate in our conference was just utterly amazing. And, you know, he is an example for our kids to be able to see what you can become if you work hard. Absolutely. Do you have like one takeaway that you could share with us that was kind of like private <laughs> that you didn't say on stage? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a, a few things I, that I was curious about that I asked the president. It was kind of personal, some some things that was political. So it wasn't 
you know, too personal, but it was political questions that he shared with me. But the one thing I thought was really interesting is how he positioned wealth. And, you know, you look at people who are, who have been highly successful is because they followed their passion. And that passion led down, led them to a road of wealth. And, you know, and that conversation was, you know, really find out what you're really passionate about and do what you're passionate about. Instead of chasing wealth, that path of passion may be your road to wealth. And so that was one of the things that we talked about. Then one other thing he thought, you know, uh, he mentioned was the importance of mentorship and how important mentorship was for him. And he shared some stories about who mentored him, you know, to become where he was at, you know, the president of the United States. And so he believes that, you know, you should you should mentor others and be mentored as well. And so that was something that stuck stuck with me as well. Yeah. Mentorship and sponsorship, even even so, you know, are key. They're just key because, you know, you don't have access to those rooms, you know what I mean, where they're making those decisions. So you have to have somebody in those rooms. And that's why I like sponsorship. I still like mentorship too, but sponsorship. Somebody needs to sponsor you in those rooms. Okay, great. So let's shift a little bit here. Let's go back to the theme of Black History Month, right? So it's Black Health and Wellness. And we've seen the rise of fields such as public and community health and health informatics have led to a rise in preventative care and a focus on mind, body, and spirit. Dr. Seal, can you share your thoughts on the impact of providing spaces for Black people to counter the economic and health disparities and discrimination that are found at mainstream health institutions? Yeah, that's a really important topic, actually. And it's underscored even more by the disparities that we saw when the pandemic broke out. It's interesting, though, because we know that much of American medical history was built on the backs of people of color, but especially Black people. Essentially, we were the experiments, right, that led to much of what we are now excluded from based on the economic structures and, that are in place. So providing these cultural spaces is for Black people in these types of economic situations is, is huge. It places us as craftspeople of our own faith economically and, and health-wise. It's important, though, that we are vigilant about ensuring that these spaces are owned and operated by us. Because what's the sense in talking about Black economic power and Black economic health if, it, if we don't have control of it? So I do think that providing these spaces, thinking about how we can empower each other, empower ourselves to be autonomous, to be the rulers of our destiny is, is really, really important, especially with regard to economics. Absolutely. Like you said, the pandemic definitely shined a blaring light mm -hmm. <laughs> on yeah. people of color and the medical area. Well, yeah, and all the disparities. It was just, yeah. I mean, it was horrendous. It was horrendous, really. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I did not realize the disparities. I really didn't because I hadn't really experienced it myself. Mm -hmm. So it definitely opened up my eyes. No doubt right. about that. A couple of the initiatives to help decrease the disparities, they kind of centered around some outcomes such as having more diverse practitioners mm -hmm. and representation in all segments of the medical and health programs. Mm -hmm. Have you seen 
an increase in people of color exploring a career in the medical field as a result of that? Well, I think we have a lot more interest, certainly, based on just what we were talking about, where actually we've seen a rise in Black women medical students. The number of Black male medical students, however, has declined, which is really interesting. This was There was this 40-year study that has been going on. It was just released last year. And it, it talked about how medical schools were you know, touting how important it is that we diversify. You know, everybody, everybody wants to be diverse, like I said earlier, right? But the numbers decreased for Black men. And we all know about the studies that show that access to care and, 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 and health outcomes improve when physicians are more closely representative of the patients that they care for. So what's interesting here is that there's been so much talk from these medical schools, right? And the policymakers about this. Yet today, we're looking at the lowest life expectancy and the lowest number of Black male medical students in in 40 years. So there is something that we need to reconcile here. It's something we need to reconcile. And the interest is there, but it doesn't necessarily translate into the actuality of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, those statistics are really interesting to me because I'm just not thinking, you know, definitely the black woman, you know, in just about every field has, you know, shown up, but it's quite interesting with black men. Have black men shown up more in the legal field, do you think? There are, there are more. Yes. So what's interesting is that's what I did my dissertation on (laughs) many years ago, but what I was studying was it, it was actually focused on women, right? The, the experiences of, of Black women historically uh, in the legal field. But when we look at what, especially in big law, the numbers, the numbers are like in the teens or they were in the teens back then. They may be the same now. What we're seeing is, or what we did see was Black women actually starting their own law. And I was seeing a lot of Black men doing that as well, but Black men were faring much better in like, in the legal industry, you know, it's an old boys club, right? So you only had one strike against you if you were black or, uh, or Latino or Asian or whatever. But if you're a woman, that's that intersectionality that we, that we have to deal with. Yeah. Quite interesting. Quite interesting. So now let's shift a little bit. We're stay- still staying in the uh, health field, but, you know, it used to be taboo to talk about emotional and mental health especially in the Black community or, you know, communities of color. Mm -hmm. However, in this day and age, Black health and wellness is broader and more nuanced than ever. We have social media that talks about it. There are podcasts such as The Read, hosted by Crystal and Kid Fury. Mm -hmm. They've normalized talking about mental health and going to therapy, as well as initiatives such as Therapy for Black Girls. We also witnessed Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka open up about their battles with mental illness on huge platforms, you know, which I thought was great. And those are young women, you know, and they, there was a lot of backlash for them doing that, but you know, Mm -hmm. they were Mm -hmm. so brave in order to do that. Now, my question is, have you seen an increase in people of color seeking out help as the stigma starts to fade? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's been this massive shift, right? about how Black people look at mental health and, and, and mental health care, 
there there's much more of an embracing of it, more discussions about it. And frankly, more people are seeking, actually doing the seeking of the help than, than ever before. This, you know, this is, you know, of course, from like a dominant perspective, because we've always, honestly, let's just be real. We've always had like the barbershop talk, the beauty shop conversations. We've always had that. And that's kind of helped us on our way. That was, that was our psychologists mm-hmm. before we had the psychologists, right? And, and this is where Black people in the U.S., this is where they went when they had a problem or they went to grandma, right? Grandma would help you flesh out some of these ideas and, and these concerns. And she would give you all the, you know, all the advice that you needed. These were our original, the original mental health experts. Now, you know, like you said, there are these apps with all Black psychologists and therapists for Black people. There's even this meditation app. I can't remember the name of it. But it has like the black voices that are like, oh, you are the best. You are empowered. Like they, and it's, and it's really, really awesome. So it, it's a beautiful thing, honestly. And, and when we look at the, the, when we look at the rise, and just recently we've seen several of this, when we look at the rise in the suicide rates that we've, we've been seeing, especially since the pandemic and, and, and these, these notable people as of late, right? We've seen a push for more people. For, for more of us, right, to really shed that stigma that we've had in the past and to really actually seek the help that is needed. People with these high-functioning depressions and, and, and not being able to speak about it because historically, oh, you just sad or you just, you know, we've heard these things. We've heard these things. And, and it makes, it, it diminishes the experiences that we're actually having. So who do we talk to? So now I think that I, I'm really, really encouraged by what I've been seeing in, in, in the tech space, in, in, in all of the spaces now for our people. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it, it has definitely been something with some of these recent suicides. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just been unbelievable, which you don't even know. It's a, it's a silent, it's another silent killer, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then and you don't, if, and because we haven't really been taught to talk about it, it, it makes you, it, you, you don't really know how and who to go to. And the people that we would normally go to don't necessarily have the tools, the resources to really help us. You know, I mean, in your own family, like you would go to your mom, let's say that, and she'd be like, oh, baby, you okay. You just a little sad today or whatever. And, and, and you go to your dad, you know man up or whatever, you know, this is what we would get, you know, even with grandma that we would always go to historically or whatever. She doesn't understand today's challenges. Some of the challenges that are happening today are vastly different than what they were experiencing back then that she could advise you on. So this is, this is really where that toggle is. Absolutely. So, you know, you had mentioned black women and I definitely want to talk about black women. Mm-hmm. Okay. To me, Black women, they've been the force, a force to be reckoned with, especially mm-hmm. within these past several years. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen, you know, women of color strategically use their voice and their vote. They continue to vie for top leadership positions, becoming the first in various roles across multiple industries. You know, for example, Mr. Kennedy, he mentioned Kamala Harris, right? Yeah. It's our first African-American Asian female vice president. And we soon to be will have the first black Supreme Court justice. Imagine that. that. I mean, that's crazy. That's just so crazy. But, you know, they're the first. 
And, you know, I think it's all great and everything, Mm -hmm. but black women have endured a lot of challenge and backlash that has, Mm -hmm. you know, created psychological and emotional wear and tear. Mm-hmm. How then can we continue to encourage and support women of color to keep striving to reach for their career goals, you know, in the first, in the face of adversity like that? Hmm. I mean, you know, there's a lot of wear and tear there. How do you keep going? Well, what we were just talking about, that mental health pieces is, is important, seeking that out. But I, I will say women of color, if you think about, if you think about what we have endured what the resilience that we have endured. Now, think, I mean, and I'm just not talking about Black women. I'm talking about every woman that is of the non-dominant culture here in the United States. And you go out into the world and there are people who are going to look at you and say, the first thing they're going to see, woman, Latina. Now those constructs get into their brain. Woman, Asian, constructs get into their brain. Woman, Indian, construct, right? And so the, what we have to constantly do when I talk about that toggle, right? We have to walk in. Okay. I'm a woman. First of all, I'm a person. I've got dreams. I've got goals. I've got ambitions, all this kind of stuff, right? I got that. But I know that this person that I'm talking to is probably looking at me like with their limiting and their deficient mindset. So now we've got to think about that to overcome that, not what we are, what they have with the boundaries that they're setting up for us, right? So now we've got to kind of do some like mind reading. Okay, is this the kind of racist person that will that will block me? Or is this the kind of racist person that will be like, oh no, I really, really love you so much, Carla. You're so great. But then behind the scenes, they're like, you know, chopping you up in the back. And, and so it's really in, it's really for us. We are, we have been resilient to a T, making it happen. We've been killing it killing it for years, right? And as soon as when we saw the pandemic, we were like, I've got to do it for me. We saw so many women, especially women of color, starting their own businesses, leaving the workplace, mass exodus. They're talking about the great resignation. Oh, let's talk about the great resignation. We were like deuces, right? (laughs) We were out of there. And so it was like, I'm out. And so it was like, we were like, we really, really want to be those purveyors of our dream. We want to go after this thing without anybody telling us what to do. And we've seen so much resources thrown at this, which is really interesting. I mean, we've seen B of A, they're giving gazillions. Wells Fargo, they're giving Wells Fargo of all places, right? Right. Giving gazillions. We've got Cornell University, like giving full on, like year long classes on how to be amazing business owners for women of color. They're saying women, but they're really, really pushing it for women of color. We've got Morgan Stanley. Who would have have thought, right? So all of these big names, they're providing funding. They're providing these trains, providing this mentorship. It's unbelievable, right? And, and, And it's like, when we think about this compounded with the resilience that we have learned, I don't know that we were born with it, but I know we had to learn it at some point because of all the stuff that we had to you know, go through. We, it, it, it is amazing to see. It's unbelievable to see. I, I think, you know, everything you said right now, it's like what I had noted to ask and to talk about. <laughs> But I think you also started touching on our next episode. Imagine that. Oh, really? What is that? Right, exactly. The big resignation and oh, how we got that trend. So, you yeah. know, 
unfortunately, to your point, I know that in 2020, a lot of those entrepreneurs were not as successful as they have been in the past. But that's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I do want to say, you know, to you and Dennis, everything that you guys shared today, as a Hispanic Latino employee resource group leader and mm -hmm. a DEA advocate, mm -hmm. I love to hear history. I love to understand the various groups. Yeah. And everything you guys shared with me, you know, I'm with you. I didn't realize I was a different category. And well, I'm not that brown either, but yeah, you know, sure. yeah. no, I get you. But we're labeled, right? Yeah. And and when that happened, it's like, you know, I need to learn more about this. I need to to absorb it and everything. I feel like I was great. I was very fortunate to be very blinded to some of these things until corporate America. Wow. Uh, so I have come across also, you know, many Afro-Latinos, Black mm -hmm. Latinos, and in most cases they've shared that they don't feel a difference between their Latino and their Black culture, that we truly are one. Right. We are far more alike than we are apart. And in fact, you know, when you study ancestry, Almost every Latino and 100% of them, you know, have African, you know, lineage as yeah. well. And well, everybody has African lineage because that was the first, that was where the cradle of humanity began. But it's, you know, and, and like you're saying, this, this racialized construct that we've all been forced to accept, that's what separates us. Not who we are as people, but the construct that says you're Latina. So this is, these are the things that you do. These are the things that you like. Go to your box. Exactly. Yeah. You are black. You go here and you stay there. That's what separates us. What society has, has dropped on us. And then we've said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that because it's easier. Right. We all, right. we all fall in line. We all do. But right. now that we know now it's, it's time to start the, right. right? Right. It's you know, and when you talk about the construct, unfortunately, it's, you know, a lot of people think about the enslavement of blacks and everything, and they only correlate it to the United States. Mm. You go and research this. Mm -hmm. it's, it was everywhere. And as a matter of fact, countries like Mexico, we mm -hmm. hit our black society. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was interesting when, when I was reading up on this for Hispanic Heritage Month and for Juneteenth and everything. Because again, I like to understand what I'm putting out there, right? I don't just like, I did not realize that the Mexican census did not include black Mexicans until 2020. Wow. April 2020 mm -hmm. is the first time that, okay, let's counter black Mexicans. You well, know? it's interesting. <laughs> that, that, that is interesting because a lot of countries don't, don't label their, their citizens, right? So when you come to America from a country, I think like Switzerland or from like a lot of the European countries, I mean, even in my country, like we don't have like, okay, your name is Dr. Seal. What is your ethnicity or what is your race? Right. We don't have that. So it, it, and that could be a double-edged sword, depending on where you are. America is a very, very racialized country. Everything. It was built on race. Absolutely. They're hands down. People will call it critical race theory. They'll call it whatever. It's historical fact. If you look at all of the, the legislation that has happened, everything was based on race. Everything. So let's just get that settled. So if we look at it that way, then we, we understand why they want to know what race you are. Because honestly, if you are one race, you get, even right now, you get a different kind of male. Right. You know, if, you, if you're a certain race, you get into school or you don't or you get a scholarship, or you don't. 
And so mm-hmm. if, if we had equitable resources, if the structure was built on equity across the board, we wouldn't need that. Right. Right. We would not need that, but it isn't. Let me ask you this. So that's talking about, you know, ethnicity, race and everything. But I feel like skin color mm-hmm. is a whole nother factor, you know, because yeah. when you when you look at the U.S., Europe, Latin America, it goes back to what you said. There are plagued biases. The darker your skin, the less apt you are to have an education, your societal classes, you know, diminish, et cetera, et cetera. Now, those are biases that we, I know we can improve as a people, right? So I'm going to ask you and Dennis, if he he still can um, address this, what do you think we can do to continue to improve on that? You know, I know education for one, like educating our peers, but what do you think would be something like, you know, if everybody was on this podcast today that's listening, you want to challenge them to do one thing. What is that one thing? Well, the one thing that, and when I'm doing my diversity trainings, it really is interesting. It's in looking at your value set, right? And it's in thinking about what is your relationship to these particular values of, so people will say values of fairness. Well, yeah, where did that come? And so then we go back. We ask like the five whys, like go back five times, right? And and where does that where does that value system about fairness come from? And then they'll start talking about, well, you know, my parents taught me this and blah, 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 blah. Well, if we are talking about fairness, which everybody believes is a strong value that you should have, right? Then we start looking at, okay, so when we have these particular schools that get $23 billion more because the students are white, how is that fair what is how how does you how do you reconcile that value system and so we start then we start really shifting into who deserves what because it is in, it is embedded in a lot of our coded conversations about skin color who deserves what based on skin color does that even make sense like how does that even make you're more worthy because you have more melanin in your skin right so i mean and when we think about it like that way, it sounds absolutely ridiculous, right? You should get a job doing this. You should be the CEO because you have less melanin in your skin. Does that make any sense to anybody? But that's what we do. That's what we do all the time. We make judgments based on melanin. And when, we, when, when you present it to people that way, it's almost like, oh, yeah, that is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think people do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. know someone. Mm-hmm. I know someone mm-hmm. that the entire team looks the same. Mm. Right? right? And and but this person when you talk to them, you will think this person is not biased, mm-hmm. it's not racist, nothing, but this is just what they see as being the right fit yeah. for the type of job that he wants them to do. Blonde, light skin, mm-hmm. females. Mm-hmm. You know, so what, how do we change that when they don't see anything is wrong with what they're doing? Well, it's, it's not our job to change that. It's our job to illuminate it, right? And if you want to change it, it's kind of like somebody who is like, is an alcoholic. And you're like, Bill, you're an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic. And Bill is like, no, I'm not. Right. And so <laughs> it's like, Bill has to get to the point where Bill is like, you know what? I'm tired of you know, kicking back 15 every night or like your friend, I'm tired of always having the same type, the same type, the same thinking. Why am I doing that? Bill has to think, 
why am I, why do I need 15 drinks every night? He, we, we have to be the ones to push ourselves. So all we can do, and this is what the National Diversity Council does, is what all of us that do uh, diversity training are about. Well, I know most of us. We bring you this information. We share with you best practices. This is how you can identify when you have an unconscious bias. And by the way, once you know that you have an unconscious bias, it's no longer unconscious. Mm-hmm. Mm. So look at this, right? And, and you have it in your hand. This is why a lot of people don't want to have, don't want to have these types of training. That's why they don't want to hear it because it actually is so much more comfortable to be in the place mm-hmm. that you're at with your family who believes the same way you believe, with your friends who believe the same way you believe, because it, then you don't have to be courageous. I, I don't believe a lot of people want to be, want to be hateful or want to be racist or want to be anything like that, but it's just so much more comfortable. Because if I have to tell you, Carla, and you and I are best friends, and, and I'm like, well, maybe Carla, maybe you shouldn't say that about, about Asian people. And then now you don't want to be my friend because I'm challenging your beliefs and your values, mm-hmm. right? So now I'm outed. Oh, I don't want to hang out with her. Right. She's so politically correct all the time. Oh my gosh, she's such a bore. You know, people, people are afraid of that. And this yeah. is, this is where a lot of the challenges come in, but, but yeah, it, it is not our job to change anybody. It is our job to, to illuminate it. And that's, that's as much as we can do. That is true. Dennis, do you want to add anything? I like a lot of what Dr. Sill had to say. And I think, you know, she made some really great points. But I will say this. You don't know what you don't know. And unfortunately, a lot of people just don't know. And it's incumbent, as Dr. Sill, is incumbent upon them to learn and to become cognizant of their own biases, racism, hatred for groups, for one, you know, for whatever reason, you know, you have those beliefs, is to, you know, first and foremost, become cognizant of those attitudes that you may have and work to ameliorate them, work to eliminate them, work to change them, you know, because we live in a society, we're socialized to believe certain things. You know, Dr. Kill still keeps on mentioning, you know, constructs, but we're, we're socialized to believe, you know, one group is superior, another group is inferior. We're socialized to believe that one group is weaker, another group is stronger. You know, it's just, it's not the truth. And I think, I believe that it's important that People learn. I think there's a lot of opportunities for learning within organizations, whether it be training or leadership or coaching. Uh-huh. But, you know, I'm not, I don't want to give anyone a pass for hatred or, or racism, but I do believe there's people who are just I'm, ignorant I'm around, <laughs> ig- ignorant around the issues and just need to be some of them obviously some of them are just plain some people are just plain just hate <laughs> they have hatred in their heart but you know to dr sills you know i line i line with a lot of what dr sill had to say so last question for you so what would you say to someone who says i do not see color i love everyone i hear that a lot <laughs> <laughs> of course you see color of course you see color. That, that's the biggest cop-out. That's the biggest cop-out that I think we've ever heard. And I think that what that, what that lends to is I want to shut down any conversation that will challenge me to, 
to look at the way that I'm expressing my bias. So everybody gets everybody gets the same is not equity. It's equality, quote unquote, but it's not equity. Because if you don't see color, then you're not seeing the experiences that have caused me to be where I am. You're not seeing the disparities that have allowed you to have a luxury and privilege to be where you are, right? And so if I'm not seeing your color, quote unquote, and, and we can we can have this broad conversation about, yes, these are racial constructs that are not real because we all know that race isn't real, right? We can say that, but in our society, it is very real. And it, it causes us to have disparate experiences, life or death sometimes. So when you're telling me you don't see color, then you're, you're saying that your experiences your experiences are diminished. They are they 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 don't matter. Period. And that you don't want to ever have to deal with your part in keeping this being a pervasive situation. So, and that's the conversation I have when somebody says that, and it usually doesn't go out well. <laughs> I love it, Dennis. Anything else? I would just say, ditto what uh, Doctor Sue had to say. You know that that remark would remind me of a conversation I had. Um, with a good friend I've known since junior high school. And I I shared with him how disappointed I was that our our mutual friends from high school did not speak out against Asian hate on social media. And I pointed out our friends didn't make any comments. And then his response was, I'm a Christian. I don't see color. That was his, I, I didn't respond back to it. I haven't talked to him since. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, essentially what Dr. Sill explained. Right. That is true. I love it because it's so true. We, you know, we can't cop out like that. We have to. And it's better when we see the color because then we also, that's when we recognize our biases, right? When we start to see the color, so to speak, if we are not seeing it now, because <laughs> we all have them. We all have them. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. But you know what, guys, this has been a great, great conversation. I want to give a big thank you to both Dr. Steele and Mr. Kennedy for joining the pod crew today. Would you like to share any social media platforms or websites folks can connect with you if interested? And we'll also recap them on the follow-up. Okay. So, Dennis, you go for it. You know, I only have LinkedIn. And so it's just Dennis Kennedy. You can search for Dennis Kennedy, but I don't have anything else. And mine is LinkedIn as well, uh, under my name. We're we're not we're not really like super cool like how people have those really cool names and stuff. Now we're just perfect. <laughs> right. We definitely also encourage you to follow the National Diversity Council LinkedIn profile or social media profiles because you can find out everything that Mr. Kennedy's doing and with his organization as well. I follow it. There's a lot of great opportunities to join and attend events. So that's one great way to definitely connect with all the passion that's being done, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great work being done. That's right. Thank you so much for and having me. we have me. events every month. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for joining. All right. Thank you, Thank folks. you, Dennis. 
Thank you, Dr. Seals. This was an insightful episode. So now more than ever, Black History Month remains relevant because it sets aside time for us to learn and reflect upon the ways this history highlights the impact that Black people have had in the world. From Supreme Court judges to astronauts to a famous tennis star to the President of the United States, this list shows a glimmer of the Markon culture, art, music, sports, science, politics, and many other facets of everyday life that the Black community has made enriching lives throughout history and beyond. We have learned in recent years that many things have helped us become who we are today. It teaches us that we all can do a little more by listening and learning in order to become better allies to one another. So as promised, here's how you can join us as an audience member on our next show episode. We hope that you are as excited as we are. So to follow us, go to our True Talk Cafe Facebook and send us a request to attend Episode 7 as an audience member. Be sure to use the hashtag TTCEP7. We will respond to your requests with our podcast website link, where you'll need to enter your preferred email address for us so we can send you the audience link to join. We'll also send all audience members a reminder the day before the show is going to record. It's going to be a lot of fun and you have to join us live. So we're always welcome your feedback. We want you to share with us your thoughts about today's show. Leave a comment or review. We will respond to all comments and just remember to be nice. We'd love to hear how you plan to celebrate Black History Month. Please do not forget to like and rate the episode. We appreciate you turning into our podcast and we hope that you join the TTC Crew Facebook page. Again, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook using at True Talk Cafe. Please use the hashtag, hashtag TTC Talks or True Talk Tuesdays. Recommendations for discussion topics are always welcome. And we want to ensure that we are providing content that is of value to you. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Thank you for listening. And our next podcast episode will be called Women of Color. The OGs of the Great Resignation is going to be engaging. So we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.